Around 1091, um, a man named Al-Ghazali, uh, a Persian uh, imam and philosopher, wrote the following in a book called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. It's a bit technical, but stay with me. He says, the connection between what is habitually believed to be a cause and what is habitually believed to be an effect is not necessary, according to us. But with any two things where this is not that and that is not this, and where neither the affirmation of one entails the affirmation of the other, nor the negation of the one entails the negation of the other, it is not a necessity of the existence of the one that the other should exist, and is not a necessity of the non-existence of the one that the other should not exist. For example, the quenching of thirst and drinking, satiety and eating, burning and contact with fire, and so on to include all that is observable among connected things in medicine, astronomy, arts, and crafts. Their connection, that when fire is in the presence of something combustible, it burns it, for example, is due to the prior decree of God, who creates them side by side, not to its being necessary in itself, incapable of separation. Uh, what Al-Ghazali is getting at is uh, a conceptual problem or a logical problem, that in the idea of fire and in the idea of something being combusted, that logically one can deny one side or the other, one can affirm one side or the other, and be in no contradiction. Now, he asserts this as a dialectical exercise for a very specific purpose. In the background are two men, a man named Al-Farabi and a man named Avicenna, both also Muslim philosophers, who took in the causal framework, you might say, of Aristotle and asserted that things in nature are themselves causes and that they are necessarily connected with the things that they affect and bring about in the world. This bothered Al-Ghazali uh, Al a great deal because he thought that if a creature does it, that if a certain effect in the world can be explained in terms of creaturely causes, that that would necessarily seem to entail that God played no part in the effect. Now, whether Al-Ghazali really thinks that the world is such that when water is in the presence of fire, it's boiling, is not in a real effect of the fire, but something God does on the occasion that they happen to be together. The position is called occasionalism, that things in themselves have no causal efficacy, but when they happen to be near, it is God who directly causes the effect that only appears to us to be natural. But he's also trying from a, you might say, a rhetorical perspective, trying to sow doubt that we can never be sure what in the world that one thing causes another and what the true causes of things might be. And he wants to do this because he wants to leave open the possibility of divine action in the world. And so he seems to suggest that explanations in terms of creaturely action and explanations in terms of divine action are incompatible. So in other words, if the creature does it, God does not do it. If God does it, then the creature does not do it. Similar ways of occasionalist thinking, to my mind, um, 
are still present and present even today. Uh, not fully formed, but incipiently. Um, and some modern thinkers who would look at nature and, for example, think that chance and purpose are equally incommensurable. And that if something is explained in terms of creaturely causes and chance, it cannot also be explained on another level in terms of purpose or divine causality. So what we're going to do today is this. Um, I'm going to offer something like an alternative to this kind of thinking, um, and using as an emblematic case of this the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. So the talk will proceed in about three parts. Um, the first part will be, well, what do creatures do and what does God do according to St. Thomas? It'll be something like a, a primer in what um, other scholastics or Thomists call primary and secondary causality, which has been mentioned in one way or another in just about every talk that's happened so far. So once we do that, what, do God, what does God do? What do creatures do? And then how do they relate? Then in the second part of the talk, I will talk about purpose and chance in nature as modeled by St. Thomas. And then in the third part, we'll offer uh, what I'll call a modest proposal about how to have something like a Thomistic framework in what we call the philosophy of nature and how that might be applied um, to new empirical findings having to do with evolution itself. So the first part. Well, what does God do? In a word, God does everything for St. Thomas. He does everything in a very particular way that is particular only to God as God. God does everything by the act of creation. For St. Thomas, creation is an uncreated, properly divine activity by which God is the primary and ultimate cause all that is, and is the primary and ultimate cause of all that is, we'll see in a second, in every way that it is, as long as it is. Now, Thomas contrasts this kind of uncreated divine activity with what you'll see in a minute is creaturely activity, or what he would call change, change typified by the mutual interactions between things we see in the cosmos. Change essentially being one thing imparting or moving another thing to have a new state of being, some kind of new property. And this is the way Aquinas is going to characterize creatures, as you'll see. But he's clear, and this is a quote from the Summa Contra Gentiles, for creation is not change, but the very dependency of the created act of being that we all exist, on the principle from which it is produced, that being God. And thus creation, in a way, is not properly an activity at all. He says it's a kind of relation, a radical relation of dependency on everything in reality, on God as its primary and ultimate cause. This radical dependency is immediate and it's simultaneous. God is the primary and ultimate cause of all that is, as long as it is, and in every way that it is. It extends to everything of every property and aspect of things in the cosmos. You might say everything that follows upon being, which for St. Thomas would be things don't just exist, they exist as specific kinds of things. They're natures. Everything that is a nature or has a nature 
has powers and capacities. Everything that has a nature and powers and capacities acts. God is the primary and ultimate and simultaneous and immediate cause of all of these things. You might say of every aspect that follows upon created being. So in other words, for St. Thomas, for the cosmos to be created ex nihilo, which is out of nothing, he of course doesn't mean nothing is some kind of primal material, but rather nothing but God's in infinite and ultimate power presupposed. Creation ex nihilo just is this radical relation of dependence by which God causes and sustains every moment of everything and every act at every moment of everything in the cosmos and the entirety of the doing and being of everything in the universe. He puts it this way, but just as God has not only given being to things when they first began to exist and also causes being in them as long as they exist, conserving things in being as we have shown, so also he has not merely granted operative powers to them when they were originally created, but he always causes these powers in things. Hence, if this divine influence were to cease, every operation would cease. Therefore, every operation of a thing is traced back to him as to its cause. When I was about, uh, what, 15 years old in a confirmation class, a little small uh, country place called Lines Point, Louisiana. The deacon teaching the class, Deacon Rodless Lella, who was the picture of an old Cajun man, if there ever was one. I, I still remember, it's the only thing I ever remember him saying. He said, if God would ever, ever stop thinking of you or anything else in the universe, you would cease to be. The incipient Thomist, Deacon Rodless Lella from Lines Point, Louisiana. Now, from, Aqu from Aquinas' perspective, that the cosmos or creation itself has a beginning in time, is not temporally infinite, is irrelevant in this case. To take an example actually from Dr. Steve Barr here in the audience, imagine, for example, for the sake of a thought experiment, that you had a piece of paper and a lamp, and a lamp shining upon a piece of paper, therefore illuminating it, giving it a property it doesn't possess itself. Say this paper and lamp have existed infinitely. There was never a point in time in which they did not exist. Now, from Aquinas' perspective, this piece of paper, even though it has existed always and has been illuminated always, it has always radically depended upon the lamp for its illumination. So Aquinas sees no logical contradiction in the universe being eternally, as far as temporal, temporal time goes, that it could have always existed and still be a created universe. This is very important to understand um, as we talk, talk about what creatures do, because we tend to look at the world and characterize sometimes in our talk that what I see in the world is creation. Well, the answer to that is yes, but not how we think. So for example, let's say we could all get in a time bubble, our time travel bubble and we go back to t equals zero. We go back to the singularity. And don't mind all the physics problems involved in this. Just say we can do it. So we go back to t equals zero, and we're witnessing the singularity, the Big Bang, Lemaitre's primeval atom, from the very first moment. 
at that moment in your time bubble, what you would be witnessing is not creation. You're going to see in a second, it would be change. One creature, one created cause acting on another. Or rather, if you see creation, you see it no more or less than you see it this moment as you watch me speak. This moment is no less creation than the first moment. Both radically depend on the entirety of their being for God's primary causality. Well, now what do creatures do if this is clear enough? You might say just about everything. Just about everything. And they do what they do by change. Change is a created creaturely activity by which one creature imparts a new state of being to another creature. Um, Aquinas would explain it this way and according to his system of thought, that what creatures do by their causal activity in changing other creatures is draw out from them and from nature as a whole a new potential for an actual new state of being. Could be a very important one. Um, he would call that coming to be. A new kind of thing comes to be from the potentiality of the universe. Or something maybe less important, some property. Not an entire being, but a new property for a being already existing. Bringing new form out of the potential, or Aquinas would say the matter of the cosmos, is precisely what it means for one creature to be the cause of another. So for St. Thomas, every intracosmic entity, every physical entity, is a composite of determination, and he calls this determination, this intelligibility form, and potential, which he would call matter. And it's clear, or we need to be clear when we talk about this, these are not just descriptive categories. Um, for Aquinas, they were called ontological categories. These are real aspects of things that are really causal, <clears throat> excuse me, and make a difference. They're part of the deep reasons in things why creatures produce the outcomes that they do. And we'll talk a little bit later, this causal interchange between creatures is part of what makes them an ensemble, a coordinated ensemble of parts. The cosmos itself, a coordinated ensemble of parts. But in the end, everything that happens in the cosmos is change, is a created creaturely activity. And you're about to see a creaturely activity that is capacitated and caused by God at every moment in a radical way. Which brings us to the next part. How do primary and secondary causality, God is the primary cause, all creatures are secondary causes, how do they relate? The best way, or rather a helpful way to think about this is in terms of maybe a vertical and a horizontal line or a vertical and a horizontal dimension where God's primary uncreated causality is vertical and that creaturely secondary causality is horizontal. If you do this, it's clear that both kinds of causality are as radically different as things can be, excuse me, radically different. In the Christian construal, in the scholastic construal, there is no greater difference than the increate and the creature. There are only two sides of the ledger, God and not God. <laughs> and the playing field on which we think about God or the creatures are radically different playing fields, rather, ra radically different systems of reference. 
Um, you might think of it this way, that the very causality of creatures, which for Aquinas you'll see has to be real causality, the condition for its possibility at every moment for the being, the nature, the causal efficacy of things is God as primary cause. Now look, for Aquinas, these two causal lines are in principle non-competing. In principle, because one is the condition for the possibility of the other at every moment that it is. Such that when I said God does everything, and creatures do just about everything, in the order of nature, in their own way, creatures do everything. How does Aquinas put it? It is also apparent, he says, that the same effect is not attributed to a natural cause and to divine power in such a way that it is partly done by God and partly by a natural agent, a secondary created cause. Rather, it is wholly done by both according to a different way. Just as the same effect is wholly attributed to the instrument and also wholly to the principal agent. Here Aquinas mentions the instrument or something we would call in our kind of jargon, instrumental causality. So one summer when we first moved out to our new house, like nine years ago, I spent part of the summer building a chicken run in a chicken coop. Um, I don't have the capacity to focus my chi in such a way that I can drive nails with my finger. <laughs> so I used an instrument, you know? So I had to use a hammer. <laughs> so I had to use a hammer. Well, a hammer is an example of something like an instrumental cause. I'm the principal agent, the hammer is the instrument. Now, the analogy is imperfect because I needed the hammer to achieve the effect. <laughs> I don't have the chi force, right? I needed the hammer. This is not the case with God, obviously. It is precisely part of God's causal generosity as creator that he imparts to instruments truly causal powers of their own to achieve effects. Because the hammer by itself can't really do anything. Creatures are instrumental causes of a kind where the causal power in them is inherent in an inherent principle on the horizontal level. By the way, which is the only level to which you and I have any direct access. All of our experience is ineradicably colored and limited by us being also part of this created ensemble as we reflect on nature and God's part in it. And last point in this regard, because God is primary sustaining cause, creator, he is more intimate to creaturely causes to us creatures than we are to ourselves. There's a way in which certain, certain thinkers try to model divine action, whether this is a result of enlightenment ways of thinking or not is another discussion. But they tend to think of creation as this radically closed system such that divine action consists in a kind of a penetration or a stepping into creation, stepping into the created order as some kind of foreign agent. Um, for Aquinas, nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't have to step in because he's intimately more everywhere than things are where they are. And it's precisely in this way. God moves us, imparts causality to us, and we'll see, works out his plan, his purposes for the perfection of the cosmos and the creatures in it. And this framework I've enunciated in a very 
very basic kind of boilerplate way, is the way Aquinas sees divine action always in terms of grace and even in terms of miracles. It's a general framework by which God takes to creation, whether in the order of nature or in the order of salvation and grace. Now that we've done that bit of preparation, let's move to part two of the talk and talk about order or purpose and chance in the cosmos and among secondary causes in the created order. Now, this would be no surprise to anyone that St. Thomas thinks that the cosmos is fundamentally a purposeful and ordered place. A virtual definition, a, a possible definition of nature is that it's a coordinated and purposeful ensemble of parts. That's what would make it etymologically a universe, a one out of many. He thinks of the activities of creaturely causes in terms of what he calls final causality. Um, this is much misunderstood. So final causality for Aquinas does a bit of conceptual work. When you look at nature and look at creatures doing what they do, influencing what they influence, they do so in intelligibly ordered patterned fashions. In other words, they tend to regularly focus their causality. Why? Final causality is the answer to that question. Why is efficient causality among creatures tend to be focused in determined kinds of ways? When a creature regularly produces, regularly produces a certain meaningful outcome, that outcome, precisely because it's regular and patterned, it's intelligible, and it's a function of the nature of this being. Creatures can affect what they affect and do what they do according to their natures. You might say the contours of their being, the kinds of creatures that they are. Aquinas doesn't think that unintelligent nature does this in the way exactly we would do, sort of purposefully or volitionally or according to a plan. For him, the intelligence isn't in the creature, but intelligibility is in the creature. No regular patterned outcome would be intelligible unless it was regular or patterned is the idea. Think of any process of nature. So we even do this colloquially, and the most reductive of evolutionary biologists tend to talk this way too. When you see um, a natural process, let's take amongst organisms, and you ask, what's the process for? You know what the process is for when it's reached a pattern meaningful outcome. It gives you insight into the process, the role that that process plays in the organism and possibly in the larger ensemble of nature. He tends to say that these are things that happen, quote, always or nearly always, for the most part. Um, on his account, most of the things that happen, um, at least on the earth, are for the most part. Um, there are exceptions. Those exceptions will be important. Now, since God is the primary cause of everything in the cosmos, everything that nature does in the cosmos, the nature of every nature in the cosmos, um, the, the, the natures of things being purposeful and intelligible in this way, God is also the cause of these. And he is also the cause of how these mutual interactions, these mutual expressions of final causality of the nature of each being function as a whole or function for the purpose of the whole. 
And for him, the purpose of the universe is just to be a coordinated ensemble of parts, of one being exerting a causal efficacy on another in this mutual relation and system of cause and effect. And that creatures are the ones who are doing it for him is crucial. If they are not, the universe would not reach its perfection or its purpose. Listen to this. This is, uh, again, the string of quotes from the Summa Contra Gentiles. Therefore, if he has communicated his likeness as far as actual being is concerned to other things, by virtue of the fact that he has brought these things into being, is everything in the universe, it follows that he has communicated to them his likeness as far as acting is concerned. For Aquinas, God is pure actuality. That creatures are actually active is a reflection of them imaging God. So that created things may also have their own actions. Listen carefully. So to detract from the perfection of creatures, which in this case is to detract from the causal efficacy of creatures, is to detract from the perfection of divine power. In this case, getting it wrong about the creature, you get it wrong about God. To dishonor the creature and the causal efficacy and capacities of creatures and nature is something impious in its own way. Now, we've talked a lot about purpose, final causality. The um, million dollar question, I guess, as it were, is how does chance fit in? If there are things that occur for the most part, there are also things that don't occur for the most part, things that occur for the least part. This is how Aquinas tends to think of chance. Chance is the result of two purposeful causal lines, each with its own order, intersecting in such a way that they impede one another. That nature accomplishing its regular outcome, this nature accomplishing its regular outcome. Because creatures have a true spontaneity, by the way. Created causes can and do fail. They impede one another. They intersect so that they do not result in the usual, and Aquinas would say the intended or purposeful outcome. He said these are things that happen for the least part. While normally um, causes in nature are what Aquinas calls per se causes, here meaning just true and proper causes, chance is also a cause, but he, he says it's a cause per accidens. That means incidentally. It's a cause, but only as a function of other larger ordered things in nature. Now, it may seem that for the most part, for the least part, purpose and chance are incommensurable, incompatible. That a thing at the same time and in the same way can't both be for the most part or for the least part, ordered or chance. This doesn't stop them from being, for chance and purpose, being simultaneously present on more than one level of a natural outcome. That a natural outcome can be both in a different way as part of a purpose, the purpose of a nature or of nature at large, and by chance. An example in Aquinas, I've chosen to show how this works, um, is from an article in the Summa about the finishing of the work of the six days of creation. And the question is, is creation complete in the sixth day? One of the objections is, 
we see novelty in nature to this day after the sixth day. This is how Aquinas answers the question. Nothing entirely new was afterwards made by God. But all things subsequently made had in a sense been made before in the work of the six days, creation at the outset. And he gives a couple of examples of different ways this can cash out, and we'll focus on one of them. Some things indeed had a previous existence, experience, existence materially. And we talked about this yesterday, as the rib from the side of Adam, out of which God formed Eve. Whilst others existed not only in matter, but also in their causes. As those individual creatures that are now generated existed in the first of their kind. So Aquinas does think that all animal kinds were originally created by an act of special creation at the outset. Um, and we'll talk about why he does so a little bit later in the talk, so stay tuned. Species also, kinds of things that are new, if any such appear, and don't put too much weight on that because he does think they appear, existed beforehand in various active powers so that animals, and perhaps even new species of animals, are produced by putrefaction, in other words, rotting and decay, by the power which the stars, here being the sun, and the elements received at the beginning. Again, animals of new kinds arise occasionally from the connection of individuals belonging to different species, as the mule is the offspring of an ass and a mare. But even these existed previously in their causes in the work of the six days. This all sounds very arcane, I know. So what is Aquinas talking about? He thinks that animal generation happens in basically two ways in the universe. One way is by what we would call sexual generation. And the other is by spontaneous generation by putrefaction. So Aquinas thinks on the one hand, what he would call perfect animals, we might even say higher animals. And he thinks as a policy, all are generated this way, where like generates like. But even on Aquinas' account, no specific animal has the causal efficacy to, to reproduce. He thinks that the causal efficacy of all sexually producing animals um, is dependent upon the causal power of a heavenly body, the sun in this case. There's a dictum he gets from Aristotle, man and the sun generate man. Well, what does he mean? He thinks that the sun capacitates certain aspects of actually human biology, semen in fact, imparts to it heat, which it then uses to structure biology in an act of human generation. He says the sun is a universal generator, here meaning it's a physically instantiated intracosmic cause whose common activity, whose ordered and pattern activity is to capacitate animals to breed and to reproduce. We'll come back to this in one moment. But another way Aquinas thinks animals do come about. He thinks worms and flies are produced by rotting garbage and oysters from mud. Spontaneous generation by putrefaction. Well, this seems conceptually weird in the schema I've just elaborated. How could this be? Isn't a rule of generation that like produces like in this very robust way? Apparently not, at least in these cases. 
Aquinas thinks that the sun heating up essentially rotting organic garbage takes out the potentiality of the elements of this garbage and can produce from that simple kinds of organisms, the fly, the worm, the oyster. And it does so for the least part. It's an intersection of chance and purpose because he doesn't think there's any reason why something can't be by chance in the particular, but from a broader perspective, be quite purposeful and intelligible. He says it this way, but it must be noted that nothing presents, pre prevents a process of generation from being a proper process when referred to one cause and yet to be accidental or a chance affair when referred to another cause. If the process of generation of an animal generated from decay, putrefaction, is referred to the particular causes acting here below, it will also be found to be accidental and a matter of chance. As in, it is not in the normal concourse of nature to his mind that rotting meat should be able to do this. But it does just so happen that its causal lines and the causal lines of the sun intersect in such a way. So that the, from the perspective of the sun, it's quite purposeful. It's an expression of the heavenly body's nature. It's doing what it does by nature. It's achieving its purposes. For Aquinas to basically be the, the intracosmic cause that, uh, that capacitates animal generation of all sorts. Now, chance occurrences in this, in this regard for Aquinas are crucial for the functioning of nature. Aquinas thinks without chance occurrences like this, there are certain kinds of beings that wouldn't be brought about in the universe save for it. If everything was perfectly ordered and regular, if nature always, quote unquote, got its way, it would be less good because there are certain beings that would never come about save for chance. And for Aquinas, nature is essentially magnificent in the sense of the classical virtue of magnificence. For Aristotle, sharing great wealth, or Cicero, doing great things for the public good. Nature is essentially generous. So when it brings things about by chance, and by the way, um, to, to break a Thomistic character for a second, if estimates that um, of all the species that have been on this planet, 99.9% .9 of them are extinct, as in what's present on the planet now compared to what has been? Well, you might say, is this all one just false start? Aquinas would say no. This is part of nature's magnificence and generosity. That part of the order of nature is to bring about as a reflection of divine goodness every different kind of being it can. And this being part of the order and the function of nature. Now, what I might do next to end the talk, which I'm not going to end it, is say, well, look, you can actually see a way to think of or map on notions of random mutation and genetic variation and natural selection and chance with Aquinas' example of generation by putrefaction. That, well, look, then a Thomist can certainly assert that one species can generate another in some kind of way. If I were to do that and end the talk, those of you who know Thomas well 
would know that that would be too easy. <laughs> that would be way too easy. Well, now for my modest proposal. So it is just true that in the generation of normal animals in nature, Aquinas, perfect animals, lions, tigers, bears, us, that he thinks the sun is only able to capacitate us to make babies because we're a proportionate instrumental cause, meaning we're the right kind of being to generate like beings. He does seem to think that quote unquote perfect animals, higher animals, by this he means they have memory, imagination, um, a really cool power that we don't have time to talk about called the estimative power, that somehow only a like creature has the causal efficacy to be an instrument to produce this. And this happens for the most part. Um, and he says um, in many, many places that this is either necessary um, or a, a reflection of the way nature has to be. But in all of those paragraphs, he has to take it back, except for the flies, the worms, and the oysters. Now, my question to you is, why would he do so? Why would Aquinas think? So, before I do this, I'm not impugning. I'm a schoolman in some kind of way, those of you who know me. I'm not impugning the principle, the ontological principle, that nature tries to produce its like. What I want you to do is to think about the way Aquinas applies the principle in this case. So why would St. Thomas say that in terms of lions and tigers and bears, perfect animals, that they only and only they can produce their like? He does so for a few reasons. One, he thinks um, that this is clearly affirmed by Genesis. So his reading of Genesis is that every animal species is there by an act of special creation. Well, as some of you might know, there are other valid ways to read Genesis in these terms. And then we have the freedom to read it in another way. Two, Aquinas inherits this commitment from Aristotle. Well, the best that human reason had to offer from his perspective is Aristotle. Aristotle says, man and the sun generate man. It's initially very plausible. He thinks the sun is a created being of a higher order than the rest of us, by the way. Aquinas tends to model the heavens and celestial mechanics as kind of a realm of perfection relative to what goes on in this terrestrial orb. Turns out that's not the case. And there's not anything standing in the way of still thinking he has the right idea that in nature there are other higher causes that contribute at any moment for us to make our own babies, right? For any generating animal. Think of all of the constituent physical causes that have to simultaneously be operative for biological nature to do what it does. But finally and most importantly, Aquinas applies the principle differently to flies and to lions because he thinks he has empirical observational warrants to do so. In the case of lions, so look, you tell me, when human beings have babies, when you're on the farm and the cows have babies, they give birth to human beings and cows. It's confirmed by our ordinary experience. This is just what we see. From Aquinas' perspective, flies are no different. He thinks when we see the rotting meat, flies pop out of the rotting meat. <laughs> Worms just appear. <laughs> you follow? 
he thinks the observations merit an explanation of spontaneous, spontaneous generation by putrefaction. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, according to the philosophy of nature, only a like thing can generate a like thing. So no matter what my senses tell me, there must be something going on with flies we don't see. He doesn't do this. He doesn't impose the principle on the observations when he think it doesn't work. He could have done that, but he didn't. Why is this important? Because the empirical is crucial, even in this kind of philosophical analysis. We now know that flies have a sex life, after a fashion. <laughs> so his, his observations were wrong. I would say boldly, we also know, we have darn good reason to think that over the long haul of nature, species in their own way produce other and disparate species. If the observations are different, would Aquinas have applied the principles differently? Well, that supposition is a hypothesis contrary to fact and as such utterly useless but in one way useful for me and for you if you're a fellow scholastic traveler. Do we apply now the principles differently, do you see? We look at what nature does. We have a good judgment that what nature does on a more fundamental level of causality in the philosophy of nature. And we apply those principles in terms of what we have good reason empirically to think nature does. It may in fact just be and is that however one wants to parse proportionate causality in nature, um, that it's no violation of it for one species to generate another. It can't be because they do. From the perspective of scholastic philosophy of nature, it's not the schoolman's position um, to tell the scientist what is and is not possible based on an a priori notion in the philosophy of nature. There's a way in which um, if a philosopher, a scholastic philosopher, wants to be a true fusikos, that is in Greek, a student of nature, he has to take into account all available forms of wisdom about nature of which modern empirical science is a form of wisdom. One different and distinct, though not separate, I would say, from natural philosophy. Now, it may also be that Aquinas doesn't appreciate, because he has no reason to, the larger role chance might play in the functioning of nature. The always, or for the most part, and the always, or then the you know, rarely, or for the least part. Think of final causality for a moment. It's not only operative in the particular, so that when we do the things we do, it is a function of our nature. But it's also a function of nature as a whole, correct? The way things mutually interact and relate. Always or for the most part can be scaled up or down in various dimensions. Think of the dimension of time scale. So from the ages of five to about 22, my Uncle Larry would slip me 10 bucks every Christmas Eve, every Christmas Eve. 
until I had to go off to leave the country for school at 22 and haven't gotten $10 since. Now, this event, these events, all, what, 17 years of my life, were 365 days apart. They were not contiguous, but they were for all that patterned and for the most part regular and you could even say often, often is relative to one's temporal frame of reference, do you see? What happens regularly, if it happens once every millennia, and it happens once every millennia, it is no less regular for something that happens 50 times a day every day. I was able, because of a unity of conscious experience over 17 years, connect these events as purposeful, patterned, and regular. So what if we take our temporal frame of reference and broaden it? So for example, what uh, the, French, the great French historian Fernand Braudel would call the long durée, and here the really long durée of the history of life and nature. When you look back over the long durée of nature, what do you see? Do you see traces of, and fairly clear, clear traces of, pattern, regularity, always, or for the most part? but only always or for the most part from the, 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 t the temporal height, do you see? Well, there might be some examples of this. Um, it's only fortuitous, but in the larger framework of purpose, that the last talk is going to be today by Simon Conway Morris. Um, one of his great uh, contributions has been the notion of evolutionary convergence, that in the history of life, you see this convergence of certain morphologies and forms that happen in disparate ecological niches over and over again. The camera eye and cephalopods, vertebrates and jellyfish. This kind of thing. Um, it may see that certain problems, we'll talk about nature as a problem solver in a second, only the camera eye will do. <laughs> when we look at the history of our own species and our species ancestors, from the bipedalism of Australopithecines, which all of a sudden gave them the liberty to use their hands in ways they'd never had before. The manual dexterity and tool making of Homo habilis and on down the line. The complex social existences of Homo heidelbergensis. Group hunting, complex forms of organizational group hunting. Shelter making and cooking, and probably the rudiments of domestic life. Do you see a pattern from this perspective in this creature? Maybe you do. It's all in the way that nature exerts final causality and achieves her order and her purposes. Um, and I have to say this when we look at the long array of nature in terms of maybe our own species. Um, this is a, an idea that I've received from Charles DeConnick, a great Thomist of the 20th century who was taken too early. Um, he says, look, um, if you're bothered by the prospect that the man and the primate have a common ancestor, would you prefer that he comes from the slime of the earth, from the Vulgate, the clay, the slime? How's that more exalted? How does it rob human beings of their dignity to be, to be the purpose of the great efforts of the world to produce? <laughs> the only creature that can take a tour of being and return the cosmos to God. How is that undignified? So it may be 
um, that nature works in a way DeConnick had mentioned, like an analogy, use duck hunting as an analogy. Um, maybe rabbits would work too. You hunt ducks and you hunt rabbits if you want to kill them with a shotgun. Shotgun shell full of all of these pellets. Because you want a pattern in the hopes that one of these pellets will take down the game and you really hope it's just one. If you've ever eaten rabbits and ducks and crunched down on a BB, it's not pleasant. You're working in such a way that you have this pattern, a chance in a random pattern. And it is precisely because it's randomly distributed that it can achieve its purpose. Nature seems to work this way. In the physics, Aristotle compares nature to a doctor who doctors himself, which is interesting. Aristotle wants to, this to suggest this notion of purpose or final causality in nature. But we might take his analogy one step further, one step further. Doctoring, in Aristotle's jargon, is a techne or an art. Why do the arts or the techni come about? Techni or arts come about in human life for us to solve problems. We are creatures of such a kind with a biology that is subject to disease, to age, accident, etc. In other words, the maintenance of health is a problem, a crucial problem. We develop the art of medicine to solve this problem. How do we induce, maintain, or increase health in a body, correct? That is the very object of medicine. It defines medicine as medicine. It gives medicine its purpose and its being, if you will. Well, how does medicine or any art proceed? It is purpose-driven. It has an objective. But it proceeds by trial and error. It troubleshoots. It solves problems. You begin to find out which treatments work and which treatments work under which conditions. And we all know the various manifestations of the problem of health are legion. You know, cough, COVID-19, this sort of thing. And the playing field in which this problem manifests itself sets limits to what solution will work. It seems to me this is how nature proceeds. Her problem is life and, as a schoolman, flourishing. And so, in every species, she troubleshoots to try to find out what will work. And in some conditions, being what they are, some things work, some don't. And in certain conditions, only some things will work. The camera eye, for example, this sort of thing. This is part of nature's magnificence, a mixture of purpose and chance. But that chance here is always conceived in a greater framework of order. The ledger is God and not God. Chance is a function of the not God. <laughs> chance is a creaturely cause. And as such, chance and contingency are not outside of the very providence of God. What God in his providence wants to happen by necessity happens by necessity. That by contingency by contingency. That by inherent function and purpose in a thing, by inherent function and purpose. That by chance happens by chance. And it happens on the level, the horizontal level of created causes and all of their splendor. Um, in other words, you would explain the efforts of the cosmos in principle in terms of the cosmos. If you have another question, 
Why is there a universe at all? Why is the universe intelligible? We can start talking about the Lord. <laughs> you see? That's when we begin to make reference to primary causality as an explanatory device. Um, and I will let, actually, Charles DeConnick sum up, sum up this whole talk. Uh, the quotation comes from a work of his called The Cosmos. He wrote it in 1936. He was 30 years old. And never had it published in its entirety in his lifetime. Um, it only came to be published in its entirety by his student, Ralph McInerney, who put together his complete works. He's referencing two different currents in his own tribe, scholasticism. Listen and see how this may apply to us and those like us. Let us say that there are two ways in which scholastics have sought to honor the Creator. And by the way, put Al-Ghazali in that category, if you will, just for the sake of the example. The one consists in diminishing as much as possible the causality of the creature. That is the, quote, idea in the back of the mind of those authors who are called creationists. This is 1936, by the way. They want us to think that it takes a special creative act for the production of each natural and biological species, as is the case with angelic species and human forms, because the human spiritual soul cannot be produced by secondary causes. They deny the scientists the right to derive biological species the one from the other. At the other end of the extreme, is found the Thomistic tendency inspired by St. Augustine, C.F., John Cavadini's talk last night, which enriches as much as possible the causality of the creature, not with the goal of eliminating creative intervention, but in order to increase it. For the creative power envisaged from the side of its effect is most profoundly at work where created causes are most causes. Tattoo this on your, on your shoulder. The more a creature is capable of acting, the more it manifests the power of its ultimate cause. For God is the cause of all causality. From this point of view, he is much more profoundly the cause of our free acts than we are ourselves. Never forget, the spontaneity of creatures and a subset of that spontaneity, human freedom, are caused in its very exercise and condition for the possibility by God. Chew on that for a minute. Now, if we have a dread of spirit which animates creationism, this is because it is not creationist enough. In the final instance, it is a form of occasionalism. Thank you. Thank you.